They say that in the case of mysterious deaths, the first 48 hours are critical. If investigators don't make a breakthrough in that time, the chances of resolving the case are greatly diminished. But what if you don't make a breakthrough in the first 48 hours or the first 48 days? What if you don't make a breakthrough in 48 years? Welcome to the mysterious case of Fred the Head and one of the UK's most baffling unsolved crimes. Episode 18 The Unexpected Passenger I wanted to start this podcast with my pursuit of Matthew James Jackson and why I was too quick to come to one of my conclusions about him a few episodes ago. One of the things that's been really gratifying about this podcast is the way so many listeners have become involved in the case, deeply involved, and the fact that many of you are doing your own pieces of research into the case. And when I first investigated Matthew James Jackson back in episode 13, I mentioned how unusual his Christian name was back in the 30s. That is true. In fact, I thought at the time there were only a couple of Matthew Jacksons around. Our Matthew Jackson and one who was born and died on the south coast, Portsmouth, Southampton area. I assumed that this man on the south coast never left the south coast. He was born there, he must have lived there and he died there. I assumed wrongly. That was our Matthew James Jackson. A couple of days after recording the last episode, I received an email from a listener, Joe Willis, who, like many of us, is intrigued by the case and also very skillful at investigating family history. And Joe had been doing some work and had come to the conclusion that the Matthew James Jackson on the South Coast was in fact our Matthew James Jackson. So I asked her to explain it to me and how she had worked it out. And this requires a little bit of concentration. It all revolves around a lady called Mabel Kathleen Arkless. Now, Mabel Kathleen Arkless was the mother of Matthew James Jackson in Portsmouth. And we have a record that Mabel Kathleen Arkless married someone called Matthew James Jackson in 1935. Now, this is where concentration is important because that Matthew James Jackson is the father of our Matthew James Jackson. So I'm gonna call him senior and the one that we have in Winshill, junior. So Mabel Kathleen Arkless and Matthew James Jackson have a son in 1936 and that's our man, Junior, who married Velia. So how do we know that these are the same people that ended up in Skegness? Well, that's because when Matthew James Jackson Senior died, well he died in Roman Bank, Skegness, and that's where Velia said he was. And his widow at the time was Mabel Kathleen 
Jackson. We also found Matthew James Jackson Sr. service record and he was in the Navy and on his discharge papers there's an address given and that address is in Skegness. So it looks like our Matthew James Jackson Jr. was born in Portsmouth in 1936. His father was discharged from the Navy in 1949 and they moved to Skegness. That is fantastic work by Joe, but I needed one more piece of evidence to completely convince me. I needed proof that Matthew James Jackson Jr, that his mother was called Mabel. And there's only one person I knew that could confirm that. I needed to speak to Velia again. Hello Velia, Ken Davis here in Derby. We spoke a few weeks ago about Matthew. Oh yeah. How are you doing? Not very good I'm afraid. I keep him falling down. Oh you poor thing. No, but I'm 91. I know. You've got to be careful. I've got to do it but I can't get out. Oh dear. Yeah, I'm, I'm in prison here. Have you got everything you need? Well, my son comes every good. morning anyway. <laughs> That's good to hear. Uh, How are you doing yourself? I'm doing all right. I'm doing okay. I thought I'd give you a quick call. One, because I haven't spoken to you in about a month and I wanted to give you an update on things. But secondly, this, I've got a question in my mind that I wanted to ask you. I always ask you questions. I apologise for that. Yeah, but, oh, yeah, you're all right. What it is, is I'm, I'm obviously on the trail of Matthew and trying to work out where he went and uh, what became of him. Yeah, but do you remember when I told you there was someone called Matthew James Jackson who was living in a house and I described him to you? Yeah. And you said, yeah, yeah that's him. He was the tall man with the moustache and the ginger hair. And that, that's right. That was him. Now, uh, just a quick question on that. Do you remember what his mum was called? What his mum? Yeah, what his mother's first name was. Oh, God. Oh, heck. I know, that's a tricky one, isn't it, to start with? I forgot. I wonder if it's in, in them papers. Shall I give you a name that I think it is? Honestly, if it's not the name, you tell me it's not the name, because that would really help. What one is it? Mabel. That's right. No, Mabel, it was his sister. Mabel was his sister? Yeah. I think she's still alive somewhere. Really? Yeah. Mabel yeah, was his sister. Right. Now, you don't think it was his mum's name as well, do you? I wonder if it was that as well. But you're sure Mabel was his sister? I'm sure. Well, I'll find her if she is. I always find people. I found you, Velia. <laughs> yeah. So if that's question number one, question number two is... Do you remember what his dad's name was? His father? Yeah. Um, oh, God. Have you got it? Well, I think it was Matthew as well. That's right. Matthew Jackson, yeah. So his, his dad was called Matthew and he, kept, and he gave his son the same name. That's right. Yeah, he had two, 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 two names. Yeah, he had Matthew James Jackson. That's right, yeah. 
It's his mum and dad I'm trying to find because I've got a feeling that he might not have been born in Skegness. I've got, I've got a feeling he may have been born on the south coast of England. Ha ha, yeah. Right on the south coast near Portsmouth and Southampton. I'll tell you how and why I think this might be the case. There was a lady called Mabel Arkless. I think you're right, you know, it wasn't Mabel, it was his mum. I'm just thinking. Yeah, it was Mabel, yeah. Okay. And then they called their children Mabel as well. So their children and ended up with the same names that's as, right, the parents, yeah. as the parents. Yeah. Well, if that's the case, I think your Matthew yeah. was born right on the south coast. And I think he died in Southampton. He died in Southampton. Well, I I think he died a bit earlier than you think. Uh, I think oh. I think he died probably the end of the 1980s. There's a man called Matthew James Jackson who was born in Portsmouth yeah. in 1936, exactly the same date as right, your yeah, husband. Because he was younger than me. Yeah. yeah, that's right. Now his mother was a lady called... Was Mabel Arkless. Yeah. Arkless yeah. was a surname. Yeah, just, and, yeah. And then that lady marries Matthew Jackson. Yeah, father. Yeah, that's right. Well, I wanted to check that because I've got a feeling he ended up back on the south coast. Yeah. Matt, you're Matthew. Yeah. But I'm going to go and find out a little bit more about that now. Okay, darling. Yeah. <laughs> well... Uh, I'm sorry to bombard you with all these questions. Oh no, you're death all right. It's nice to hear from you anyway. <laughs> well, I'm. Well, I, I hope you look. You know, I, I wish you luck. Well, I, I you'll be the fir- you'll be the first person to know if I turn up anything that you need to know. Bit, yeah. I will yeah. make sure of that. And you make sure you look after yourself. Yeah. Are you pottering around the garden and things? Are you getting enough sunlight? Yes, I I, I think it's my age though. Because I, I get, a, you know, so depressing in here because yeah. nobody, nobody with this, what do you call it, is it vaccinated. You've had your jabs, haven't you? Oh, yes, I've had two jabs, yeah. Good. The first and then the second, yeah. You listen to something good on the radio or I'll give you a call every week just to see how you're oh, getting on. Oh, bless you. I will. You, God you're... bless you. Yeah, you made my day today. Thank you so much. No, don't be. No, it's <laughs> all lovely, lovely to talk to you. Yeah, and it, it's lovely to talk to you. And thanks again for all that information because that really does help me. Yeah, you have a lovely day then, okay? Yeah, bye bye, darling. See you soon, Velia. Bye. God bless. Bye bye. So Matthew had a sister called Mabel, and a mother called Mabel, according to Velia. And Sister Mabel might still be alive. And if she is alive, what could she tell us about the story of Matthew James Jackson? I got back to Joe Willis, who had been so helpful on this, and once again, she came up trumps. Mabel was alive. She'd been married around the time that Velia and Matthew got married, so she had a different surname. But we managed to find an address for her. And soon after that, I had a telephone number for her. And for the first time in this investigation, it felt 
we were one phone call away from understanding the full story of Matthew James Jackson and how he fits in to Fred's story. But at that point, the gods of investigation decided I'd had enough good fortune for a while. I called Mabel. It didn't go well. The call lasted about 20 seconds before Mabel politely put the phone down on me. Now, remember, I'm a stranger digging up people's pasts and I've not been invited. Now, I try to do it in a way that encourages people to help, but it's a miracle that no one's done that before now. And honestly, if a stranger rang me and asked me uninvited questions about my brother, I'm not sure how I'd react. So let's not be too quick to judge that. The fact she didn't want to talk to me doesn't really mean anything. She probably doesn't have anything to hide. It might be a very difficult, sensitive family subject. And finally, and probably most importantly, it's none of my business. After three years though, I'm not an easy person to shake off. So I sent her a letter explaining why I needed to speak to her and why I needed to do it now. I included my telephone number and a stamped addressed envelope just in case she felt she could help and she could get back to me. Watch this space. But before we move on, let's just recap on what we now know about our man, Matthew James Jackson. We know he was born on the 13th of May 1936 in Portsmouth. He lived, I think, around the Gosport area. His father, also called Matthew James Jackson, was in the Royal Navy throughout the war and he was discharged on a pension in 1949 and the forwarding address is Skegness. So our Matthew James Jackson moved to Skegness in 1949 at the age of 13. Now that was news to Velia who had always assumed that he was Skegness born and bred but she wouldn't have noticed the different accent being Italian. And by the way, do you remember that article in the newspaper when Matthew James Jackson ran away from home in 1953 after he'd stolen money from his father and he was found on the south coast? Well, that now makes sense. He wasn't running away from home. He was going home. And this, I think, was a man whose father had been away at sea pretty much all his life until then. And then took him to a completely different part of the country where they would have spoken very differently and he would have known no one. Now, I don't want to be sympathetic to Matthew James Jackson. We all know what he did to Velia and how monstrous he was to her. And some of the things she told me, I'm not going to put in the podcast. But I reckon he had a pretty difficult childhood. And after being told to leave Skegness by the police in 1962, he completely disappears. We think he reappears in 126 Newton Road, Winds Hill, before disappearing again around the time of Fred's death. But that's the last thing we know for anything like certainty until summer 1987 in Southampton, when he died, age 51. But from 1962 to 1987, that's still a complete mystery.
Thanks for downloading the podcast. It's great to have you on board. And a special mention to our listeners in America. For some reason, we've seen a very big rise in listeners in the USA over the course of the last month. I get a breakdown geographically of where all our listeners are. And I get it by state in America. And we seem to be particularly popular in Texas and Pennsylvania for some reason. So if you're in Texas or Pennsylvania, a special shout out to you. And make sure you're on the Facebook page, Who Was Fred the Head? There's a lot of valuable discussion taking place there. Now, on the subject of the Facebook page, I do look at that a lot. And there's some very interesting questions do get raised. And if it's a factual question that I know the answer to, I'll put the answer on there. But sometimes it's more of an idea or a sense of what people think may have happened. And I really enjoy looking through those ideas. And one of the things I've noticed over the last few weeks is the subject of Mr. Jenner isn't going away. That the coincidences of Valtraud Annalina and Valtraud Annalina just seem too much of a coincidence for people to take. And that there's still a lot more to that story than meets the eye. I think people felt I left that story too early. I think you're right. I think I did check out of that story too early. I don't know whether it's crucial to the story or just an interesting subplot, because I don't really think he's Fred. But I have to admit, it was a truly unusual set of circumstances. And again, it's all happening on the south coast of England for some reason. So I've decided I'm going to revisit that subject either in the next podcast or episode 20. And I've started work on that. And I have to tell you, it doesn't get any less interesting. Anyway, let's get back to the story. At the end of the last episode, I spoke with Zoe Kun in Australia and she'd mentioned some of her friends that I needed to track down. So for most of last week, I was trying to find Zoe's childhood friends. There was Fiona Webb, who lived opposite Zoe, who might have been the person who told her that a creepy man had moved into her old house immediately after the Kun family had left. Was that Matthew James Jackson? There was Julie Jordan, who Zoe thought had a stepfather called Jackson, who had been talking to her about horses. And Gillian Hayward. She was the granddaughter of the Halsteads, who lived in 127 Newton Road, the semi-detached house next door to 126. Did she remember who moved into 126 Newton Road after the Cunn family had left. Over the last few months I've been extremely lucky in tracing people and getting in contact with them and getting them to talk to me. But this is starting to get slightly more difficult. Facebook is my go-to option. If I can find a person on there I can send them a messenger message. Problem is with that they don't always see it. It's very hit and miss. But if I'm lucky, I can find a phone number. But as we've seen in this episode, that doesn't always go well. 
The problem is, I think, is that we all get so many scams by email or by phone. I think most people assume I'm just another scam. In this case, I found all three of Zoe's friends. They all exist and are alive. But having reached out on Facebook, nothing was coming back to me. Neither of these options seemed to be working. I needed to go back to the old school methods. So just as I had done with Mabel Jackson, I wrote them a letter. I actually found writing out why I wanted to speak to them an easier thing to do than saying it at the start of a conversation. And with a letter, there's a good chance people will read it all and understand my motivations. And I'm not sure you always get that chance on the phone. I'll read you what I sent to Fiona. Dear Fiona, my name's Ken Davis. Please forgive me for making contact, but I wonder if you could help me with something. It involves something of a mystery I'm working on. I know this is highly unusual, but it involves the recollections of a lady called Zoe Kun. For the last three years, I've been investigating the case of an unidentified man's body that was found in 1971 in Windshill, and it's highly likely that this person died in 69 or early 1970. It's a mystery that's not been solved in the intervening 50 years. And you may well be aware of it. It's known locally as the case of Fred the Head. Now, why would this lead me to make contact with you? Well, Zoe was a schoolgirl in the late 1960s and she lived in Windshill at 126 Newton Road next to Greensmith's flour mill. And I think you may have known her. She moved to Australia in 1969 and I've spoken to Zoe in Australia many times. She mentioned something that I would really like to check with you. She sends her best wishes by the way. Of course, I'll explain everything to you and it's probably of only very minor significance to the case and definitely nothing to be concerned about. It really involves me trying to identify who lived in her house after she moved to Australia. Now, if Zoe's name doesn't mean anything to you, I'm very sorry indeed for wasting your time, but if it does, it could be extremely helpful and I can't afford to leave any stones unturned. I do appreciate though, it's a very unusual request to receive by post, but I hope you can help. And I wouldn't ask unless I felt it was necessary because I think you might be the only person who can answer this question. You can reach me by telephone, give me a call or text and I'll explain lots more about the specific details. Many thanks and best regards, Ken. And a few days later, I got a call from a very intrigued Fiona Webb. Fiona has a different surname now, but it was definitely her. She remembers Zoe very well. She lived in a house across the road from Zoe and they spent hours playing together in the garden of 126 Newton Road. She described Zoe creating a horse jumping course in the back garden for her and her friends to jump over and woe betide you if you didn't jump over them in the right way. I mentioned to her my interest in 126 Newton Road after the Kun family had left. Did she remember someone moving in who was creepy? 
explaining to her that Zoe had mentioned that in a call from Australia either to her or to Helen Jowett, someone had mentioned this. Now Fiona didn't remember anyone creepy moving into 126 Newton Road after Zoe had left. She didn't really have any interest in the house after Zoe had gone. Weirdly though, she did remember 127 Newton Road, the house next door, and a very elderly man and his son who were living there around that time. The house went to rack and ruin, she remembered, and she remembers her mother commenting on the man and the son. She mentioned a few other people who were around at the time who are still with us, so that's very, very useful indeed because the more people I get to talk to, the better. So Fiona's going to think a little bit more about that time. Obviously, now I've opened that channel of communication, she could remember some other very interesting things. But talk of 127 Newton Road, that intrigued me. I needed to go back and check a few things, because maybe when whoever put that notice in the Burton Mail about Matthew James Jackson living at 126 Newton Road, could it have been 127? I remembered Zoe telling me quite a long time ago that the Holsteads lived next door. And although you had to work at the mill to live there, after Mr. Holstead, who did work at the mill, had died, Mrs. Holstead was allowed to stay in the house for the rest of her life. I had assumed that Mrs. Holstead was still there after Zoe and the Kun family had left. And that's why I wanted to speak to Gillian Hayward, their granddaughter, because I was working on the basis that Gillian would remember the years after the Kun family had left, and so she could shed some light on who had lived in 126 Newton Road after the Kun family. Turns out, I was wrong. I went back to the births, marriages and deaths records. Mr Holstead, John Holstead, had died in October 1965, as we thought, leaving Mrs Holstead, Doris Holstead, as his widow. But Mrs Holstead wasn't there after the Kun family left in 1969, because she herself died in January 1968. So I had it the wrong way round. 127 Newton Road was empty before the Kun family left. So who was living in 127, the other mill cottage, after the Holsteads? I needed to know. Did Zoe remember? Because she was there for the next 18 months. I called her, and as always with Zoe, I got a bit more than I bargained for. Hello. Hello Zoe, how are you doing? Oh, okay, I was just about to pour myself a glass of port. That sounds like a yes. good idea. Yes, well, um, it's now half past seven in the evening, so... Perfect. The sun went down some time ago. I've got a very quick question. Do you mind? No, not at all. I'm thinking about next door to you, 127 
Newton Road. Yeah. And I remember you telling me about the Holsteads that lived there. I remember you saying to me that when Mr Holstead died, Mrs Holstead could stay there, even though she didn't work at the mill. It was just that's the way they did things. Um, exactly. Great. Now, John Halstead, Mr. Halstead, died in 1965. So I guess you would have been about nine or so at the time, or eight. Uh, eight, yeah. And then That's right. he died the year after my grandmother did. Okay. And and then Doris carried on living there, Mrs. Halstead, but she then died in 1968. Yes. So. What the question is, who lived there after them? After that. I've been racking my brain on that particular thing because I know, I know someone else moved in there, but I do not remember who. Was it a family? I have a vague memory of a couple, but I don't think they had a child. I, I, I suspect that the person was perhaps on the opposite ship to, to my father, and so I, I wasn't acquainted with him. That makes sense. I'll tell you why I got onto this. I had a conversation with Fiona Webb. She remembers you very fondly. Oh, she was a lovely girl. I became friends with her years and years ago when, you know, I think she was three and I was four. I sent her a letter, actually, because I couldn't find any other way of, I knew her address, but I didn't know any other way of getting in contact with her. So I sent her a letter. And uh, she rang me up straight after getting the letter saying, this is intriguing. I've not heard the name Zoe Kun in about 50 years. And, uh, That's about right. And so we ended up having a really interesting conversation. Really what I was after was who moved into your house after you left, because that's a mystery. And she, she couldn't remember that. But what she did remember was, do you know the old man that lived next door? I thought initially she was talking about Mr and Mrs Halstead, but she wasn't. And she seems to think there was an old man and maybe a younger man living there. So I thought, well, I'd better talk to Zoe. Zoe might know that. And does that ring any bells? I, I have a suspicion that the Halstead's son lived with them for a little while. Could that be it? I don't think so. And I'll tell you why. Unless you know differently, I don't think they had a son. Well, let me correct that. They, they, they only had the daughter. I think they did have a son, but I think he died in childhood, you know, before the war. But they had a daughter, I think, called June. And she was Gillian's mother, no doubt. Oh, that's true. That would be, that's a good way of cross-checking that. She, I wonder if she's still got that lovely red hair. Who, Jill? Yeah. She had a, a sort of strawberry blonde red hair, it was, and it was as soft as anything. Like <laughs> my dad was, was a hairdresser, and so oh, yeah. noticing people's hair was something that, that happened. Yeah, I suspect if she does, it's probably out of a bottle now, as we all... <laughs> as, as we all... Well, mine's much the same colour as, as it's always been. There's a few grey hairs in there, but... Blimey. It's, You've done it's well, then. It's still basically blonde hair. Blimey. Well done, you. And, uh, yeah. and it's still down to my waist the way it has been most of my life. Really? This is what I was... Could... when I got bitten by the snake. All right, well, that sounds like a story I need to dig into. But I always imagined you, and of course, I've never seen a picture of you, uh, I always imagined you uh, with dark hair, but you're, you're, you're blonde hair. Oh, yeah. You must take after your mother then, presumably. Yeah, she was blonde when she was young, but she went darker at puberty. Okay. Uh, that's interesting, because your dad presumably wasn't blonde. No, he, he had light brown hair. Did he? 
that's peculiar, isn't it? Because uh, I would assume he had, being Hungarian, he would have had darker hair. Ah, no, you see. The Kuns are um, descended from the Cuman people who had come from somewhere in Asia Minor, um, and they were very pale people. They ran away from Attila the Hun and that lot, um, and they fetched up in, um, in Hungary. Um, the most famous of them, Elizabeth, married the, the local king. Um, okay. Some people were, were uh, basically favoured and looked after, which was why my father's family had once upon a time had you know, titles and things before there was the revolution in Hungary and everybody got stripped of their titles and their lands and ended up sharecropping on, on lands that, that belonged to their families. So, this, is intri- yeah. this is intriguing though. So what colour was your dad's hair? It was yeah, light brunette. Okay. It depended on how much time he spent outside too. When he did a lot of gardening without a hat on, it went lighter. In winter time, it went a little bit darker. I always assumed he had dark hair, and he and that was a silly assumption. So, just one other thing, by the way, as we're talking about this, you always get me on sidetracked, and I'm really glad you do because it's interesting sidetracks. What religion was he? Roman Catholic. Yeah, Dad was Roman Catholic, and Mum was Lutheran. Yeah, that so makes technically sense. he was excommunicated when he married my mother. <laughs> Did your dad have any other family? Yeah, he, he has a brother in Leicester, two in Hungary still surviving. The brother in Leicester can't still be around, can he be too? He must have, must have passed away by now, wasn't he? Or was he younger? He, he was younger. Dad was the second youngest, uh, sorry, second oldest. Um, in the family, but his older brother died somewhere or another. I think there was seven originally in the family. There was a girl who died in infancy. So one one of the brother ended up in the UK. Yes, one ended up in Leicester um, with an engineering company, and That's... he had one daughter, Julie. What was his name? He... What was his name? Um, Lewis. Lewis. Uh, and was that his was that his given name, or was that his kind of anglicised name? Uh, that was his anglicised name. So he would have been, what, Laszlo or someone, maybe? Lawyish, I think it was. Okay. Um, he, he was married to Jean, whose sister Mary emigrated to Australia with her husband. We knew them, they lived in Tungabi. And they had a daughter called Julie? Yes, yes. Lewis was younger than your dad? I believe so, yes. Okay. And... I mean, what did he look like? Uh, he was darker. Right. Okay, I mean, that was, that was it really. I just wanted to see if, uh, if you had any more memories of 127. And, uh, uh, and who might have been there. Uh... When you talk about an older man and a younger man, there is something there, but I can't think what it might be. It could be something my mum told me. Right. Because mum went back to Germany and, and dropped over to England and, and visited with people and things a few times. Mm-hmm. Um, a couple of times with my dad and, and, and several more times on her own before she actually moved to Germany. She used to sort of pop back there occasionally and, and um, I think once or twice she even called in at the house to see what changes had been made inside the house. I what? would be very tempted to do the same thing if I went there. 
Yeah, there's been a few Knock changes. The door and say, you'd hey, like I lived here in the 60s. You'd like um, it. You'd like it. It's it's yeah. been done up now. Uh, well, it was, I'm sure it was very nice when you lived there. But but yeah, somebody bought it about uh, three years ago. In fact, both houses, one two six, one two seven, and replastered them and did them all nice. And they were up for sale by auction of, uh, about six months ago. They look really nice. I was half tempted myself, to be honest. Uh, <laughs> That, but that would be just getting very weird if I ended up living in 126 Newton Road. <laughs> uh, hey, if you get a brainwave about what was happening next door, in the year after Mrs Holstead died and you leaving, I'd be really interested. Uh, well, if, if, it, if it pops up, I'll, um, uh, when I do my meditation tonight, I'll ask my subconscious if we can have a dig around and see if we can pull out a memory. Bless you. Yeah, well, I've got to say, I hope that your victim is not the young man that I met, because he was nice. I think it must have been a Saturday morning, or it was Saturday lunchtime, because he used, Dad used to work 9 until 12 on Saturdays, and so sometimes I'd walk into town at, say, 10 o'clock or something, go to the library and maybe do, do a spot of shopping, go home with Dad. And this is when he was working at the, ha- at the hairdressers? That's when he was working at Peter Graham's hairdressers. So whether the young person was a customer or whatever, I'm, I'm not sure. He wasn't in the shop, but he was outside when we came out. I'm sorry, I'm probably going over real ground here, but was he Hungarian? Was he Eastern European? He must have been. I only vaguely remember you know, a couple of words and they were in Hungarian. I, only, I, I, I don't know any Hungarian, really. I know about six words. When I think about it now, perhaps it wasn't Hungarian. It could have been one of the other Slavic languages that my dad spoke as well because they sound much the same to a nine or ten-year-old child. So just going back to that, uh, that meeting with this man. Just just a lift from town up to the, the little row of shops where we stopped. So... You'd walked into Burton Town Centre, to library and all that kind of thing. You'd met your dad yeah. coming out of the shop on a Saturday. Yeah. Coming back in the car, at that time, the man we're talking about wasn't in the car. But you know when you first met him, you, you said he was standing outside the hairdressers? Yeah. Were you also standing outside the hairdressers or were you in the car? No, I, I came in through the back. Okay. Um, I think it was Graham who was leaving at the time, but I couldn't swear to that. One or the other of them was on his way out, and you could see the back of the shop from the lane. Got you. And I saw one of them coming out, so I, I walked walked in through the back of the shop. Dad was just finishing up and about to walk out the front, mm. and so we went out the front, and I got in the back of the car, and the, and the two guys got in the front. When you first saw this guy, you obviously didn't know him. Can you describe him for me? I mean, not when he was in the car, but when he was outside the car. What colour hair did he have? Um, Do you remember? I know I'm asking a lot for 51 years ago. Yeah, no, look. It wouldn't have been dark, really, really dark, because I'd have noticed that. He was, he was a fair sort of person. Not unlike my own dad's colouring, I suppose. Yeah. I mean, you mentioned that your dad had come from a set of people in Hungary, if you like, who had that colouring. Mm. Was this 
you know, similar in terms of here. I mean, what I'm asking really is, would that person also come come from that that set of people? Do you think that's a distinct possibility? The Cumin people settled in quite a few different places. Hungary yeah. wasn't the only country that took them in. Okay, was he taller or shorter than your dad? He was shorter, not a lot, maybe an inch or so. Okay, and would you say he was younger or older than your dad? Oh, much younger. Roughly, what would you reckon to have been his age? Yeah, late teens, mid twenties to, to early twenties. I would have thought a lot of a lot of those sort of guys are a bit ageless. Yeah. Now, when you say a lot of those sort of guys, are you inferring this this idea that which your dad alluded to afterwards well, that he was a kind of a cross dresser kind of thing? I'm I'm thinking of the type of guy that my dad is. There's an Asian part to them somewhere, which got mixed into the Hungarians and gave them you know, the distinctive cheekbones. Okay. Um, but there's also in in like there's Estonians, there's Albanians, there's a lot of people, um, even even northern Italians that have got that sort of you know blonde hair, blue eyed thing going. Yeah. Um, and I believe that they are probably interrelated. So. Yeah, yeah, you're right about that. You dad, did your dad have blue eyes? Yeah. Wow. Otherwise, how could I have them? I don't know. You've got blue eyes, Zoe. But that's uh, oh, okay. that's but that's true. But this man that you then gave a lift to Windshill, this was the man that your dad said to you, "Look, you might see this man." in ladies' clothing. Don't embarrass him by talking to him if you do. It's, we are talking about the same man, aren't we? Yes. Yeah. He's, he's, I have to say, he's suspect number one he is. I need to know who he is. Uh, and he lived near, and he, we think he lived in Windsor. Yeah, Dad said he lived in a flat above the shops. Yeah. Um, and I have an idea he went through the newsagent's shop to get to his flat, perhaps, or it was next to the newsagent's shop. That's but interesting. Yeah, when I think about it, I'm, I, I would imagine that it was actually on a Saturday morning because Dad very rarely worked in the shop at any other time because he worked at the mill Mondays to, to Fridays. And this, this man uh, probably just got in for a haircut. He didn't work there or anything like that, did he? Look, he might have done. There were, there were young men that used to come in, um, apprentices and people like that. I don't know. Anything that comes, comes. But now, I mean, I haven't even thought about the relative heights, but when I think about it, with the two of them standing next next to the car and me at the back, Dad was just a bit, a bit taller. How tall was your Dad? Well, now you're asking me. Five, eight? So that would, if your dad was, say, 5'8", this would make this guy probably 5'7". Something like that, yes, probably. How tall is your corpse? 5'7". Gosh. Fair hair, thin, very thin hands. Oh. A while ago I, I wrote down what had happened since we came to Australia in a sort of, you know, potted history. Mm -hmm. So that, you know, if the kids want to know something later on or grandkids or whatever, it's there and written down no matter what happens to me. Yeah, well, that's a good idea. Um, and um, and I was thinking what I should do is perhaps go through the English memories as well 
especially once I turn up my own passport, because I've got the passport I obtained when I was five. Um, and so had, that basically had me going over to the continent a couple of times and, and then coming to Australia. But that will probably give me an anchor for some of the trips to Germany. And also, I, I want to know whether I was actually in, the, in, in Germany or in England at the time when they believed that your person was killed. I mean, it slightly does overlap because they, they reckon from looking at the state of decomposition, but they gave it between nine and 18 months. And because he was found in, on the 26th of March, 1971, that means he was probably buried sometime between July 69 and July 70. Yeah. Now, the first bit of that, you would have been there. Yes. Uh, the first three months. The other nine months, you wouldn't have been there. And Unless it could even earlier. Say that again. Unless it happened a little earlier. Uh, no, they're pretty certain that, it, that sometime between July 69 and July 70 is when this person was killed. And so, that's a re I mean, that's a very narrow window, really. So I need to find someone who went missing uh, between that time. And, you know, that's why I'm interested in this, this guy. Because the other odd thing about it is he, he was naked apart from a pair of socks. And this ring on the right hand, wedding ring on the right hand, which is an Eastern European trait. So he'd been stripped of any identifier. Uh, there was no clothes. So what worries me... Well, what intrigues me about that is that let's say that person had been dressing as a woman and was in women's clothes when he was killed, but clearly was a man. It would be very, if that person had been left clothed in a woman's clothes, but clearly a man, he would be very, very easily identified. That People. makes a lot of sense. So he was, his clothes were taken off him. Uh, it probably, I think, in order to hide, because why... Why strip a, a man's clothes? Uh, yes. Because he's just a man. Now, there might be an identifiers on those clothes that some, that person didn't want anyone to find. But I think it's quite possible that this man was wearing women's clothes and he, they took the women's clothes because to make it just seem like he was just a man. This was the 60s, so by that time, would someone earning a living in that way perhaps declare it as, as a, um, an income stream? I, I don't think so. Uh, I mean, homosexuality had only been become legal in 1967, and the law was well ahead of, of the general public's view on it. You know, the general public's view on anything of that nature was, was very, I think, was very judgmental. So... Yeah, well, my, my dad was homophobic to a certain extent. Um, which is why I'm thinking that, that the young man we gave a lift to may have dressed in ladies' clothing for entertainment purposes, like on a stage or something, um, but was actually heterosexual. Okay. That's, I mean, that's so interesting and important because the other yeah, weird... It, it, that just came to me. I just thought about that as you were saying that. Um, my dad was never horrible to people who were homosexual or anything. He was always polite and, and what have you, but 
I knew that underneath there was still that Catholic boy. Yeah. Now that's interesting though, because the other unique thing about this man that was found, this man had spent a lot of money on his dentistry at a time where you didn't have to. If you just wanted repair work on your teeth, it's free on the NHS. But this man had spent a lot of money having quite an extensive denture fitted and also spending quite a lot of money on the materials that were used. They were, they were not normal materials. Uh, and so it would have cost money and he would have had to have it done privately. That says to me, someone to whom appearance is very, very important and is worth spending money on because that's their income. Yes. And so that again points to me, maybe someone in the entertainment or modeling or, or, or you know an industry where appearance is critical yes you know maybe even in a band you know maybe even in in the music industry you say modeling now there's a possibility because my dad was quite a keen amateur photographer um back at, at, in those days well had been for a long time but um still in, you know, in the 60s he developed his own film and did all sorts of special lighting effects and filtering effects and done heaven only knows what. Yeah. Um, so it's a possibility that he knew this young person from some sort of modelling. That's an interesting. I, I've never used the word before actually in in this whole investigation. But as soon as I said it, I thought, yeah, that that also makes a bit of sense. Mm. I know that Peter Graham's shop had some customers who preferred to come on the Saturdays even when it wasn't convenient for them because my dad was a better hairdresser than either of the proprietors. Uh, so so could customers would come and say, I'd like, I'd like Frank to do me, if you don't mind. Yes, yes. Um, yeah, my, my dad just, you know, I don't know, he, he just seemed to be able to cut some people's hair better than other people were able to. I guess the other thing as well is if you were from an Eastern European or Hungarian or, or Czech background or something, I mean, you could have a chat to him while he's cutting your hair, you know, in the native language because he could speak all these languages yes. too, couldn't he? Yes, that's, that, that would always have been a possibility. I remember you saying your mother, I seem to remember you saying that she didn't like your dad mixing with people like that. Is my recollection correct or well, not? No, it was it was more along the lines of not to mention him to my mother, oh. and especially not, and especially not the, the the thing about about maybe seeing him dressed as a lady. Okay. Um, now that could simply have been like more 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 likely than not that would simply be because my mother's a gossip. Your mother didn't know this person at all, so your dad was simply saying, "Look, don't mention it. Don't mention him to mum. She'll just." She'll just tell people. Well, he didn't actually say that, but he just said, you know, don't, don't mention the, the, this side trip to your mother. So I didn't. He didn't have to explain. No. We live with this lady. <laughs> She's a very nice person. She bakes wonderful cakes. Um, she does her very best and she, she she's you know, very helpful and what have you. But she can't keep her mouth shut on anything that she's been asked not to talk about. So hopeful that one day I'll get to talk to uh, uh, Val. Um, <laughs> if she can't keep most of it, I'll be there for days listening to her. Uh, okay, that's interesting. And, and you never went there again, and you never saw this man again, and, and he just 
that was it then. He wasn't a regular thing that you yeah. dropped him off or anything like that. But I mean, it, it had to be in that last year that, that we were in in Burton. Why did you say that? And I'm fairly, I'm fairly sure that somewhere around Easter that year, um, we went to Germany, Mum and I. Well, Easter and before I, you went away. Yeah, we, we went to Germany and France and Switzerland with my aunt and uncle um, on a bit of a, a bit of a European tour since uh, they were about to take me to the other side of the world and I was never going to get to see the mountains again. So that would have been that would have yeah, been, I've, I've been spring. I have been trying to remember, um, but yeah, I'm pretty sure it was springtime that year, so March, April, something like that. Sixty nine. Sixty nine, yeah. Now, did that at that point, by the way, did you know you were going to Australia? Oh no, nobody told me at that point. Okay, so only in hindsight you think, ah, they were just taking me over there to see it because we weren't going to be here for a while. Yes, yes. Hey Zoe, as always, lovely to speak to you. You have a nice evening, and uh, yeah, if anything, if anything occurs to you, uh, drop me an yeah. email. If any, if anything comes up into my mind, I will. Send you a text or an email or whatever. Yeah, or just jot it down, because sure as eggs are eggs, I'll probably give you a ring in a week as well. All, all you've had so far out of me is, is the potential of wild goose chases. I don't think I've really provided you with any particularly useful information. One of those wild goose chases, we will actually catch the goose. Good luck with your chase. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate this episode is longer than usual, but the more that conversation went on, the more intriguing it became. This revelation to me that Frank Kuhn had light brown hair. I had always imagined his hair as being dark. And the fact that there's a whole community of Hungarians who had this same light brown hair, that's news to me. And potentially significant in relation to the identity of Fred. And the news that Frank had family in the UK, another family back in Hungary, that's of interest to me. But the retelling of the story of the young man, the female impersonator, and the lift to Windshill. Zoe's told me that story before, but this was subtly different. Originally, she said she'd only seen him from the inside of the car from her normal backseat position. Now we learn that she saw him when all three... Frank, herself and the man, were outside the car. And that he had the same light hair and was a bit shorter than Frank. Frank was about five foot eight. That would make this man about five foot seven. We know, and I've checked the records, Fred was five foot seven. And this idea that rather than Frank's wife Val merely disapproving of this young man being a female impersonator, the fact that Zoe was told specifically, do not mention we dropped him off. Do not mention that we've taken a diversion to drop him off at his home. Why? That seems quite a length to go to over something so trivial. And that young man was waiting for Frank outside the shop. Was this prearranged? Didn't sound to me like a chance meeting. 
I always imagined it before that it was a chance meeting. I don't think it was. And finally, this trip to Germany in spring 69 that Zoe made with her mother and some other family, but not Frank. Now, that may mean nothing, but it does mean one thing. Frank was on his own for a month in 1969. Now, a word of caution. The most innocent things, when put into the context of a 50-year-old murder, can seem suspicious. The chances are the diversion to drop the man off at his home in Windsill was an act of kindness, nothing else. And there's something else that I particularly need to be careful of. In a case where there's so little information, and Zoe has been so generous with her information, am I simply developing the explanation? Because that's all the information I have. Putting Frank in the frame, because that's the person I know most about through Zoe's generosity, that would be a big mistake and a disservice not only to Frank of course but to Fred so we've got to be really careful we don't jump to any conclusions but one thing I'm struck by is the physical similarity between this young man this female impersonator and the body we know as Fred exact height hair colour the same, Eastern European. I have to redouble my efforts to find this man and that's what I'm going to do. This has been a long episode and the next one might be very, very short if we find out nothing, but that's what I've got to do next. But let me leave you with a couple of thoughts about Frank and this young man. There were in fact two examples of secrecy. Don't tell Val, but also to Zoe, don't say anything if you see him dressed like that in the street. Don't embarrass him. Now, was that really not to embarrass him? Or was it not to embarrass Frank, not to link Frank to a transvestite? Because this idea that he was just a professional female impersonator doesn't stack up. Why mention that to a 10-year-old Zoe? Because she wasn't going to nightclubs. The only chance she could have of seeing him dressed in that way was if he dressed in that way in everyday life and she might see him in the street. And finally that lift. He was waiting for Frank outside. It had been arranged. Zoe turning up at the barber's well, I'm not sure that was. That was just on her way back from the library. So what does that mean? Does it mean Zoe was the unexpected passenger on that journey? Until next time, have a good one. The Mysterious Case of Fred the Head is a GSC Media production. Written, produced and narrated by myself, Ken Davis.